0: Tech talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech 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 talk tech 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 talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings earthlings. Fasten your seatbelts and get comfortable. We're all set to take you on a joyride beyond the horizon for the next 40 minutes with another tech talk. And here he is, our joyriding pilot, Matthew Dickerson. G'day, Matt. What's been on your mind?
1: A joyrider, hey? That sounds pretty exciting, doesn't it? (laughs) Look
0: a lot that
1: have been on my mind lately. It's all been around CS, Consumer Electronics Show. I get excited every year. It's been a long time since I've been to one, because the last couple of years they haven't, well, they've been a virtual one, they haven't been able to do a physical one. It's been physical again this year. But one of the things that's really interesting from CS is it's every new and latest product that you can possibly think of from all the different manufacturers. And I always like to look at that a year or two years down the track to see how many of the things actually... Actually caught on. ...caught on or... Are real? They might yeah. look good in a glossy stage presentation, but do they actually work in the real world? Or yeah. can which they be manufactured? The real promise? Yeah, but it's what I like about that is it's just here's an ideas. It's almost an idea show. Sure, the manufacturers are trying to sell their products, but a lot of it is just around here's some random ideas. I wonder which ones will be reported on or that people will like the look of or ones that will come. So there's the a bit of fishing track. involved there, yeah? I reckon there is. Yeah, yeah I reckon yeah. they do throw a few things out there and just look at the reports over the next couple of weeks, see the reaction, look at what social yeah, media see what says. get excited by. Yeah, and yeah. then go, oh, there's a bit of a winner there. Yeah. Let's go and jump all over that one. So, uh, And a couple of stories we've done today, or will do today, and we did last week. Came out of CS, but there's so many. You could just do, I reckon we could do a dedicated week or month of episodes just on some of the stuff out of CS, but I really try and pick out the things that I think we'll still be using or talking about in a year's time rather than just, hey, these are lots of cool things and they're of no use in the real world.
0: Yeah, I know. (laughs) And and there's been enough of those in the past, haven't there?
1: Absolutely. Well,
0: I tell you what, you've got a bunch of interesting stuff today with a couple of stories to change the colour of our day, figuratively speaking. Um, There's a bit of tech zhuzhing for our front door. And for the hoarders among us, those old video games from yesteryear just might make you a couple of bucks still. You might be glad you didn't throw out the old Atari yet. We kick off today on somewhat of a melancholy note, though. Bust out the Kleenex, folks. Flags are flying at half-mast, and in the faint distance, you can hear the sombre tones of a funeral march, for the Blackberry is dead. Vale the Blackberry. Once upon a time, the loyal and trusted friend of entrepreneurs and politicians the world over, Matthew... I've forgotten these things even existed.
1: (laughs) Don't say that, James. I used to love my blackberry. Did you ever actually have one?
0: No, I didn't, but I had well, family members that That's why did. You're, you're a non-believer. <laughs> yeah, I was a non-believer, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: But they were called crackberries at a time because yeah. people were so addicted to them. It was like crack. And as you say famous politicians, anyone that was important. Barack Obama. In fact, Barack Obama famously held onto his BlackBerry. He came into office yeah. in 2008.
0: <laughs> that wouldn't let go of it. Wouldn't
1: let go of it. And they said, no, no, you need to have a fully secured device. No, I, I need my BlackBerry. I'm so addicted to it. They end up giving him a reduced feature BlackBerry. So he still get to got to keep his BlackBerry. Yeah, right. But they just took away some of the features. I'm not sure exactly what they did to it. But their cybersecurity personnel said, well, we'll give you something that's Like a BlackBerry, but we just removed some of the features. It
0: had the full QWERTY keyboard on it, didn't it? It
1: had the full keyboard on it, physically typing. I remember when smartphones first started coming out and one of my daughters had one, I said, I'll give you a race because the physical keyboard is so much better than that silly little keyboard on the face of the smartphone. But BlackBerry were the first ones that really said, we need email everywhere we go. Mm. Before BlackBerry came along, and, and certainly a few years before that, when we started getting email on our computer... I can remember when we'd set up computers for customers and they used to dial out to collect email once a day because <laughs> it was like mail. You'd go into the post office and collect your mail once yeah. a day. So you do that the same with your email. The biggest decision customers used to make would be, what time of day do we do it? nine o'clock in the morning? Do we do it after lunch, for example? Wednesday would dial out and when you would dial out, it would then send any of your emails you had stacked up and collect all your emails that people had sent you. So imagine that, sending someone an email and go, I wonder when James is going to get back to me. I wonder what time his collection time is for the day. (laughs) And then, of course, you wouldn't answer them for a day because you'd get the mail and then it might be dialed out for a couple of minutes. And then the next day, it would dial out and send back the response to that person. Well,
0: look, I've got to confess I'm still hopeless with my emails. I've still got to <laughs> – anyway, but – You're dialing out once a day still, yeah, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Once a day, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But, of course, BlackBerry came along, and obviously this is getting to the point where people realise they need to be connected a bit more often than once a day. And it was a first handheld device that allowed you to get that email on the go all the time without using up lots of data. Because the thing was, mm. a smartphone or devices that had email on them, if they – use much data, you were being charged per kilobyte, not per megabyte, mm. per kilobyte for your wow. data, and that got expensive. The really clever thing that BlackBerry did, and they basically the idea came about from 1999, so very early on in the whole connected email revolution, the very clever thing they did is they had back-end servers, and when you'd send an email, it would go via one of these servers, and it would cut out all the extra stuff in that email and send just the raw information that was needed, just the data, sort of that mm. type of thing. And the idea there was it would reduce the amount of traffic. So you could get a plan, and and I'm going on memory here, but I think I used to pay $50 a month for unlimited BlackBerry data. So it was all Mm -hmm. my browsing via the BlackBerry service, all my email. And that was incredible. If I had a smartphone that used normal data, because data was so expensive, that would have been hundreds of dollars, easily hundreds of dollars. And I had a bit of a run-in with the managing director of Microsoft at the time. I was at a Microsoft conference. We were a gold partner with Microsoft. And the managing director pulled me aside and said, look, you're using a BlackBerry here. It's a Microsoft conference. You should be using a Microsoft phone. I went, oh, that'd send me broke. <laughs> if I used a Microsoft phone with all that data going back and forth, oh, 50 bucks a month and I can get all my data. That's just fantastic. And Anyway, so they weren't happy with me still, but that was the big thing. BlackBerry's really changed the game from that perspective. Yeah. But of course now, as of about a week ago, they turned off all their backend infrastructure. I don't know if there's anyone left actually using a BlackBerry, but they turned off all their backend infrastructure. So officially... <laughs> The BlackBerry is now dead. If you have one of those Blackberries, for you now to send email, even for the messaging service, the BlackBerry messaging service, any of those things that relied on the BlackBerry servers, that's now gone. gone. So you've now got a nostalgic paperweight. (laughs) And I had a bit of a quick look at it. I thought it was interesting just to see how things changed over the years. The first mobile phone that I sold was 1990. And I just wanted to look at very briefly the change in the manufacturers over those years. Mm. Back when I first started selling phones, Motorola was it. What you bought was a Motorola – just which model you bought was the decision, whether it was a Motorola bag phone or one of the handheld, the large bag
0: phone. You mean one that had the satchel that uh, that went with it? It it was a
1: very stylish satchel. (laughs) It was a man bag, (laughs) I think. It used to hang over your shoulder. You'd turn up to the pub to have a a beer with your friends with your little man Man bag bag. over your shoulder. Yeah, that was the one. So they were a bag phone, and they were more powerful. They were three watts of power they used to output compared to the handhelds were 0.6 watts. So they were more powerful, so they were very important to have those. And then you had, of course, the Motorola, the huge handheld ones. You see some funny old ads where someone's looking very sleek and sophisticated with that huge battery. brick, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, That's right. (laughs) And they were called the brick. And then, obviously, the the flip phones. They got some of their Dynatac flip phones. But Motorola ruled the the roost for many years. And then this little upstart Nokia, this little tiny Finnish company, wasn't that tiny, but from Finland, really taking on the might of Motorola. Well, again, it's one of those things that when someone is in front – and they become a bit arrogant, Motorola thought they would be the mobile phone manufacturer forever. Dr. Martin Cooper in 1973 made the very first mobile phone call on a Motorola. He worked for Motorola. So Motorola believed that they owned that space. But of course, Nokia came along and they started chewing away at that market share from Motorola. And by 1998, they became the number one manufacturer, number one seller of mobile phones in the world. everyone
0: was carrying the Nokias.
1: They were absolutely right. And it started slowly at first. They just got in front of Motorola. And that's when you had companies like Ericsson, Panasonic, Alcatel that made up the top five across the world. There were some blasts from the past there. Absolutely right. But Nokia, again, in 1998, they came along and said, we're now king, we'll rule the world. And they got to the point where they were so popular that they sold – 265% more phones than the company in number two spot in worldwide market share. (laughs) So for every one phone of the number two spot, they sold 2.65 phones.
0: Was it because you could play Snake?
1: Snake was a big part of it. Absolutely right, Snake. And this is what they did. They captured what people wanted. It wasn't about email then. It was about a small phone, good battery life, having some games like Snake on there. Of course, texting came along, convenient ways to do texting, adaptive Mm. auto text, all these sorts of things. Again, Nokia thought they were going to rule the roost forever. Then you had some other upstarts come along like BlackBerry, who didn't ever make it to number one, but got to the stage where they were selling about 40 million phones a year. They had about 80 million users at their peak around 2012. But, of course, smartphones that did a bit more than the BlackBerry also came along, and you didn't have to have that QWERTY physical keyboard. They had Mm. the the keyboard on screen. So after Nokia went to number one for many years, and Motorola dropped off the face of the planet almost there was just no one buying nokia uh, motorolas but then nokia didn't see this threat from smartphones coming along so 2012 was when Samsung came along and they hit the top and then you had companies like nokia apple zte and lg rounding out that top five blackberry around there as well they're around that maybe fifth or sixth spot but they went up very quickly and then once these smartphones could do everything the BlackBerry could do with reasonable data costs, suddenly they went down very quickly as well. And then for the last probably six or seven years, you've really had that fight amongst Samsung who have stayed pretty much on top, but with Huawei, Xiaomi, Apple, they're all keeping the pressure on Samsung, but they've been on top now since around about that 2012 point when they knocked off Nokia. So they've been there for 10 years, so it's probably time that someone else came (laughs) along.
0: (laughs) Something's going to happen. It's time for another explosion.
1: Looking at that history there from 1990 till now, you've really had Motorola, then Nokia, Then Samsung, and then what next? Who knows?
0: Well, if there's a moral to be learned from that, it's complacency is a cruel mistress. Yes, absolutely right. Now, in my family, when we buy a car, I tend to do all the worrying about all the specs, and my wife gets to veto the... She gets veto power on the colour. And as a side note, she's not a big fan of white, which is a bit of a sticking point between us. But there is good news, folks, because we live in the future. And that means everything is at the touch of a button. Everything, And that includes choosing the colour of your car to suit your mood. Matt, what kind of digital sorcery has BMW been meddling in now?
1: Well, they stole the idea from a Kindle reader. Because a Kindle reader is not like a normal device where it needs power to keep everything running on the mm. screen. It actually uses power to change what's on the screen and then leave it. So it's really good on battery consumption because it's not constantly using battery power. So it uses power to Flick the switch, if you like, from Mm. white to black on the screen, and then it stays like that until it needs to change. So BMW thought, that's not a bad idea. I wonder if we can apply that to an entire car.
0: (laughs) To put it on the whole car. So they
1: did that. They said, we've now got a car. Now, it's a concept car at this stage. You can't go and rush out to your local BMW dealer. But the entire car can be white, or it can be black, or any shade of those in between. So (laughs) not red, not green, white, grey colours and then black and they do that exactly the same concept as a kindle reader where it's just changing the colour of the actual external component there so each pixel if you like is about the size of a human hair so it changes the colour of each pixel, from white to black, and then no power required. When you flick the switch, it'll use power again to do that. Now, it sounds pretty cool. It helps when husbands, very and w- cool. husbands and wives are fighting over what color of car <laughs> they want to buy.
0: Also helped James Bond, I'm sure, in some way or other. Well,
1: someone did mention to me, and they said, what about when you are get away from the police? They can be looking for a white car, and then there's a black car. I'm not encouraging bank robbers to go out and get okay, one of these cars. Right. It's just a concept right It's now. just a concept, exactly right. In the cartoons, maybe, that's fine. But BMW have a very practical purpose for it they believe that they can make cars that are more energy efficient. So they might want a white car in summer when you want to reflect as much heat as possible and not use your power for the air conditioning. And they want a black car in winter when you might want to absorb some of that heat so you're not spending so much power in heating the car. And this is all around some of their EV strategy. It's not so important when it's just petrol that you're burning and polluting the atmosphere it's basically you've got that unlimited supply, you feel like with battery power, Mm. you're trying to create a car that's more efficient. Heating and cooling the car now is not using, for example, the heat of the car to generate that heat inside the cabin or heat from the engine you're having to actually generate that heat in a different way which is using power mm. so they believe this is a bit of a solution to doing that I can see some smart third party app manufacturers saying we can actually have sign writing all over that car or ah. different signage on a car and just imagine a third party app you pull out your phone you say today I feel like being a fan of a particular rugby league team so you yeah. go and <laughs> put all those emblems over the outside of your car and the next week it might be a cricket team you might want to follow or well, whatever
0: selling sponsorship space couldn't you
1: uh, absolutely right you can have your company car that's company car by day and just a nice family car by night for example so all sorts of applications bmw's not pushing that but i think what happens with innovation is yeah. you come up with step one and then other companies come and up with the step 28
0: come up with the other <laughs> ideas yeah. yeah
1: but it sounds like an interesting concept definitely
0: now from coloring your car to coloring your hair L'Oreal has acknowledged the trouble associated with bringing in a new look, and they've gone all high-tech to make the process much less of a messy problem. Matt, the listeners can't see this right now, but I'm swishing my luscious locks to and fro before you to highlight the rich new mahogany tone that surrounds my prominent ball patch, just like on the commercials. Uh, How in the wide tech world have L'Oreal stepped up the colouring game?
1: You think they would have just solved the ball patch problem first, wouldn't you? Can you do that for us <laughs> well, all? For for all us older males. Can you fix please. that problem? Then we can worry about what colour it is. At the moment, it's skin colour, surprisingly <laughs> enough. <laughs> but it is quite incredible, isn't it? Now, this was a reaction to the fact that people were at home couldn't go and see their hairdressers. And so then they had this problem where they wanted to keep the color of their hair the same color it always was, rather than all these roots coming through at a different mm. color to the rest of their hair. Yep. So L'Oreal thought, well, people are trying this at home. They're making a mess in their bathrooms. They're not getting the color right. So they came up with this color sonic device. And so what it does is a couple of things. The first thing it can do is can check the color of your hair, the natural color of your hair, or any other colour. So you point it to a magazine, you get somewhere where you say, I want the colour of Jennifer Aniston's hair. So you get that colour as a reading. So then straight away you know the exact colour the hair is going to be. Then you put chemicals into the handle of the device, and you stroke it through your hair the same way that I've seen my daughter, for example, with their straight iron. When they're making their hair perfectly straight, it's a device that effectively clamps on their hair, and then they stroke it through their hair. It vibrates, not that fast, about 300 vibrations per minute, so it's got a, a vibration process there, and that distributes the color throughout your hair as you do it. So essentially, you choose the color, put the chemicals in the base, and then just stroke this through your hair, and magically, you've got the hair exactly the right colour and right down to every part of the hair that you wow. need
0: to Yeah, there you go. So um, none of these um, gloved up, messy, <laughs> all over the uh, the bathroom sink sort of affairs. You have
1: been colouring your hair, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good experience <laughs> there. But no, none of that sort of stuff. Now, they are worried about the hairdressers themselves because obviously if everyone can do this they'll sit at home and they go we don't need to worry about going and getting a professional to do our hair we can do it with a colour sonic they've also got a colour right which is a professional version of this that allows a hairdresser to say come in and have it done here with the professionals and they've got a commercial version of this device that allows you to colour the hair at the commercial level if you like so it'll be used a lot more by hairdressers higher volume does it faster but again encourages those people to go through the hairdresser
0: and we're not doing anyone out of a job here
1: well hopefully not but (laughs) i suppose it was that reaction as i said before reaction to the fact that they couldn't go and see the hairdresser so l'oreal saw there was a potential hole in the market people are trying to do this at home and not doing it that well or making a huge mess in the process
0: well good on them now apple Watches. Telling the time, recording health and fitness stats and and organising your personal life is just so, so decades ago. Now they're entering into home security and you can throw away your keys, forget your pins and scrub your fingerprints fair off the bone uh, because Apple Watch will unlock your front doors hands free. Matt, can it carry in the shopping as well?
1: No, but it makes it easier to carry in the shopping because at the moment I've actually got the lock we're talking about here is called a Schlarge encode plus i've actually got one of my (laughs) it is a bit i've got one of my locks it's a schlage encode the model before this and it's great i can use an app on my phone to unlock the door i can use a pin to unlock the door but it's still a bit hard when i'm carrying the shopping in to actually pull out my phone it's a bit of a first world problem i do admit pull out my phone and actually hit the icon on the app to unlock my door now if i was thinking about it I'd do it in the car before I got my shopping out, but sometimes you you forget. No, that's right. And then you're standing at the door with all the shopping in your hands, you've got to put it down to (laughs) press the button on your phone to do it. This will solve the problem. So the Schleier Code Plus adds the concept of NFC, near-field communications, so then your watch can just be waved in front of the device the same way as if you're paying for something at a store and wave it in front of it, and then that will unlock the door and away you go. Happy days.
0: Just make sure you're carrying the light bags in the hand.
1: (laughs) There, That's right. You don't want to wave around in the heavy bags. You'll need biceps (laughs) on that, that arm. So this is a real area at the moment, I see, where we're getting a lot of these electronic locks, smart locks, and there's different methods they're using. So they're using fingerprints, or they're using pins, or they're using an app. And one of the big things, and the reason I chose the slides Encode in particular, was it was one of the few locks I found on the market that just connected to Wi-Fi without needing some sort of bridge or hub in the middle. The downside of that is the batteries that it uses go flat relatively quickly. Mm. So probably about every three months, I've got to replace the batteries in this device, which seems like a lot. And we've talked before about having Wi-Fi harvesting, for example, to try and reduce Mm. our reliance on batteries. And here I am using four AA batteries every three months, which I feel terrible from an environmental perspective. So this sort of thing, the plus is the same. It will be connected straight to Wi-Fi. Some of the other lock manufacturers on the market like to have that hub or some device in the middle, some sort of bridge device, because they can have proprietary communications, which will use much less power but I just like the idea of having the lock that just nothing else required Wi-Fi in your house that's it connected and you can be anywhere in the world pull out your phone hit the unlock and then someone at your house presumably not a burglar someone that you want to get in (laughs) can get into your house you also get notifications on your phone when someone does actually come through that door so if you want to keep an eye on the burglars that want to try some pins or whatever it might be then you can keep an eye on that as well
0: very very cool And and while we're talking about ease of access and smart locks are very popular, of course, perhaps it's time just to go the whole hog and get a very smart door. Um, Matt, what's a smart front door? got that my current door doesn't have.
1: <laughs> it's got the term smart. We know <laughs> that, James. Put smart in front of anything and it'll sell.
0: <laughs> my front door's going to get jealous now.
1: <laughs> it will, especially if you put it on the back door and then <laughs> they know there's another smart door somewhere else in the house so the <laughs> jealousy <laughs> would go through the roof. So Masonite thinks that it's not good enough just to put a Schlage encode or a Schlage encode plus on your door. It thinks you need to solve the problem with your entire door So they're now marketing a door that's got all the smarts built into it. So, for example, it's got a smart lock. It's using a Yale smart lock. It's got a smart doorbell, so a ring doorbell. It's got lights built into the frame of the door and some motion sensors. So when you walk up to the door, motion sensors go off, lights up the door, got the ring doorbell, got the smart lock if you need to unlock it remotely. Most importantly, I mentioned the batteries in my Schlage Encode. Most importantly, this is hardwired into your house. Also got some backup batteries as part of the door so that if power is cut from your house, it all still works for a certain period of time. But that's an important part of it, I think, that it is part of your whole home automation, part of the power of your home. And this door then is made so these components are easily replaceable. Masonite says, we think you'll have a smart door for a long time. But we think the features on that door will change over time as technology changes. So they've made all the components easily replaceable. So what it's got is basically everything integrated into one door. You can add these individual components on, but you can do it all in one door. So it's one totally integrated unit.
0: And now I've got to find something else for my butler to do.
1: (laughs) That's right. That's part of the problem, isn't it? (laughs) First world problems are all over the place, James. I'm
0: going to have to be thinking hard just to give him extra jobs. Tensions are rising in the communications playground and Google is calling Apple out for bullying. Matt, what has Apple done now to upset upset Google and do they need to spend some quiet time in the corner? (laughs)
1: Probably. (laughs) It's one of these things, it's all about... Green versus blue. And it has become a bit of a status symbol when kids are using their phones and they want to keep up with each other or keep up with the Joneses Mm. and they send messages to each other and they're going in blue because the messages, we're talking about text messages here. In in
0: the bubble. In the bubble,
1: they're blue messages because the people you're communicating with have also got apples. It's all okay because our status symbol is we're using an apple. So, Uh. oh, what's that green? There's another message that's coming from someone else and it's a green bubble, it's Uh, a green message and it's spoiling
0: the aesthetics of the screen oh
1: they don't have an apple they must have one of those android phones oh do we want to include them in their group messaging or do we want to include them in their one-on-one messages and students have talked about this students have been interviewed where they've said to their parents i need to get an apple because i need to be part of the blue bubble set absolutely yeah that's right i need to be part of the blue bubble set rather than the green bubble set now what google is saying is that Apple is basically putting barriers in place for an open messaging system. And when text messages first started in 1992, the first text message was sent. And when text messaging started, it was all about every different type of phone, mm. didn't matter the manufacturer, it all works. Now, with an Apple, they'll argue that it still works because it does but it just looks a bit different and it identifies the person that you're communicating with as to what they've got.
0: Just a small amount of taint, but it's taint nevertheless.
1: Oh, it it is a little bit. Now, what Google is pushing is RCS, which is a messaging system. It's a universal messaging system that gives you some of the advantages of Apple's iMessage system, but it means it's available for everyone. Now, of course, Google would be pushing that because iMessage is only Apple, so they have got a barrier to get into that market. And there's been some confidential documents that have been sent out as part of the Fortnite versus Apple battle, which we've talked about before. Some of the information there, there were some of the emails that were sent internally at Apple where some of the executives were talking about iMessage in particular – And they said, there's no advantage to Apple for us to release the iMessaging across all platforms because that's one of our competitive advantages. And there's no advantage for us to go down the RCS path because, let's face it, we want people to use Apple devices. So it's quite a deliberate strategy. And it's there in writing from the executives of Apple to say, we want our messaging to look different. We want people using an Apple phone to have that sort of status associated with them that they've got an Apple phone. So a bit of argy-bargy between Apple and Google, as you'd kind of expect, they're competitors. They're trying to put their best, foot forward, best feet forward. So I don't know where this is going to end up. I suspect that Apple will hold on to this as long as possible because they want their product to look different. I suppose it's up to Google to come up with a better messaging system to make their messaging somewhat <laughs> oh, <yeah>. more exclusive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, right. Yeah, really interesting space.
0: Oh, goodness me. Uh, the games that we play, huh? Now, speaking of games, do you have some old video games taking up space in your cupboard right up the back? You know, taking up, just collecting dust? Well, dig them out and cash them in. Auction house experts are keen to sell them for you. Matt, is there a chance I can retire on the sale of an original Nintendo 64 Mario Kart cartridge?
1: If $1.12 million was enough for you to retire on, James,
0: and given
1: the amount of time you've got to spend on getting your hair the right colour, that may not be enough money for you, (laughs) but if that was the right money, then absolutely. A 1996 Nintendo 64 copy of Super Mario 64 sold at auction for $1.12 million.
0: That's ridiculous. And it
1: had been opened. It wasn't sometimes collected with comics, for example, and games. They won't. Open it. In fact, I know people who buy two copies of, say, a comic, and one copy is there put away to be a collector's item.
0: Plastic sleeve, right? Absolutely
1: right. right. And then the other copy is the one they read and actually enjoy reading that copy. So that was quite incredible. But even more recent versions, a 2012 Minecraft Xbox 360 edition game went for $17,300. Not enough to retire on, but still not bad for a game that might have cost you $60 back in 2012. So some of these old games, and again, they don't expect them to be in absolutely perfect condition. There are people out there who actually enjoy these old games or reminds them of some part of their youth or reminds them of the first game that my dad bought for me and we used to play that together. Yeah, you know, Crash Bandicoot, I used to play a lot with my son. And I can imagine in another 20 years' time, if I found a copy of Crash Bandicoot, oh, that'd be great to look at that. And you'd play it for five minutes and go, wow, the graphics are terrible <laughs> on these, aren't they? Where's the holographic images that I'm expecting to see now? Well...
0: Atari was famous for their Space Invaders, but they had a lot of other games, and some of them, the graphics were just woeful, That's and the right. playability of them are was th- absolutely are almost you think Space
1: easy. Invader had good graphics?
0: <laughs> <laughs> for its time, it was heaps better than Pong. You're
1: probably Pong. right, yeah. It was definitely better than Pong. So it is interesting, if you've got some old games tucked away there, go and have a look. You only need to go and see on some of these auction houses and even probably on things like eBay that are not specifically focused on some of these games, you could probably get an idea of how much some of these are worth. The auction houses would like you to go and see them and get an appraisal and all those. Sure, if you're really serious, if you think you've got something that's really valuable, do that. But just by doing a quick search on eBay, you'll get an idea of whether some of the games you've got are worthwhile or worth money. Some aren't. Some were so so many were produced that they just There are too many out there, for example, but there are some that are a bit rarer, some they had limited editions of, obviously, some they just didn't produce large numbers, so there's not many left out there in the marketplace now. So have a look at it. If you got some of those old ones tucked away? I wonder
0: if I get anything for the old Nintendo game and watches, you know, the ones with only just two or three buttons there and the (laughs) LCD screens. You'd think,
1: no, wouldn't you? But there are some collectors out there and collectors like to collect. Stuff.
0: This is permission for me to hoard. (laughs) That's right, quite possibly.
1: (laughs) The obvious ones are the ones where it is limited edition and people buy things that they go, I know this is going to be one that is going to be rare in years to come. But the ones you like are the ones that you don't really know. You've got some great treasure hidden away Mm. in your cupboard that you don't even know is worth much because it didn't say limited edition. It didn't have anything special associated with it, but it might, for whatever reason, might be valuable now.
0: Wow. (laughs) Well, as I say, all that hoarding that I've been doing is now justified. Now, it's been a while since we went rummaging into medical tech, but this next story is an absolute cracker, folks. Blood-thinning drugs and angioplasty, they've been the go-to for clearing clogged arteries for decades. But in the modern age, it was only going to be a matter of time before another option arrived on the scene. And, Matt, tiny robots swimming through your blood vessels scraping plaque from your walls is no longer science fiction. (laughs)
1: It's not science fiction. It just seems incredible. But what we do so many times, and we've talked about it many times, James, we look at nature and we go, wow, Mm. that looks pretty cool. Why don't we do that in our made-up world or go and produce something similar? So they actually looked at bacteria and how bacteria moved around, and then they've created this little tiny robot that's got a propeller on the back of it that spins along like a bit of a corkscrew and actually moves through your blood vessels.
0: Like a bla- bacterial flagellum, you might say. <laughs>
1: That's what I was going to say, almost. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, you want to get these drugs to where they're needed. So rather than just put some sort of drug in your system that goes through all your blood vessels to try and get rid of a blockage, for example, then this will go directly to where the blockage is. Once it gets there, that releases the drug right there, so it can do oh, its wow. work where it's needed rather than just pump a bunch of stuff in. Now, they're looking at, first of all, to look at some blockages, so they're trying to break down some of that cholesterol, that plaque build up in your blood vessels, but then they're already talking about the potential for using it for cancer treatment because cancer treatment often is will just make your body weak and reduce the ability for your body to keep attacking itself, and essentially, that'll hopefully get rid of that cancer or reduce that cancer before we might cut it out. But you can imagine getting this right into the cancer and then releasing some sort of radiation directly yeah, there well. where it's needed. The rest of your body won't, wouldn't be so effective. You might lose all your beautiful locks in that cancer treatment. It might just go and attack exactly that spot where you have the cancer. So all sorts of potential. And the great part about it is it's non-invasive. Because sure, slice you open, dive in and grab whatever you're trying to fix up. But of course, whenever you invade the body, whenever you are invasive in that surgery, the recovery time is a lot longer, and you might be damaged on the way. Oh, risk of infection—absolutely right. Yeah, for Whereas sure. this is obviously, I would assume, some sort of keyhole surgery. It would go in, be inserted into a blood vessel, and then off you go, little robot, go and do what you're meant to do.
0: Well, I remember them talking about this all um, years ago, even even a decade ago. But it all seemed, as I said earlier, like science fiction. Yeah. Um, so they use magnets on the outside of the body yeah, to yeah.
1: actually. Rotate the little corkscrew shaped rotor on there so it's not like it's got a little battery and it spins a rotor. They're using magnets on the outside to spin that rotor, yeah, And right. then they also use some imaging to just see where exactly it is. So, have we got it in the right spot? Oh, there it is now, they it's in the right spot. It. And then they use a, a trigger mechanism from outside the body as well to release those drugs. So, that would be fantastic. amazing to watch. It would be, wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: now here's a little something for the gym junkies among us a company called Nordic Track has teamed up with Amazon's Alexa to allow you to wait for it, select your dumbbell weight with a voice command. Matt, is this really a thing? I'm wondering in what situation would mean that it is so hard for me to select my dumbbells by hand from a rack, so I need to ask a toy to prepare them for me.
1: I am so out of touch. (laughs) I didn't know this was so important. But apparently, when you're doing your workout, which we obviously do different workouts, James, but when yeah. you're doing your workout, you need to be able to have different weights there to choose. Now, many people have an entire weight rack. Mm. So when they're watching their workout and they're going through and following their program, quick, grab that two kilo weight. They grab it off their weight rack and they use that for whatever exercise and grab that five kilo weight. They put it back and grab the five kilo weight and away they go.
0: That's what I imagined would have happened.
1: Absolutely right. Then it became... Well, it's a bit too clumsy to have this big weight rack in the lounge room when you're watching your TV for all these different weight sessions. So they came up with the idea that you have one weight with pin. So you choose the pin where the weight is and you slide the weights on and off and put the pin in and then use that. Now that's great except a lot of these workouts have set times between the actual session. So you've got maybe 5 or 10 seconds you finish that one, now go and do this next one. You're trying to slide a pin in there and then you pick up the weight and you haven't put the pin in properly and it falls on your toe and then you're out of action for a few weeks. So, Nordic Track says the way to solve the problem is to have a motorised caddy that you can talk to or I would imagine yell at to <laughs> say <laughs> you, you put the arm in and then what it will do is it uses motors on the sides to slide in, lock them in, and it all does that within a few seconds. So you drop it in there, I need five kilos, and it changes that very quickly and you pick it up and do your next weight session, put it in, I need 10 kilos, does the changes, picks it up and away you go. I don't see me buying one of those any <laughs> time in the near future, James. When you get one, I'll come around and have a look at yours and see how well have it works. A look at it, yeah. But these are the first world problems we solve here on Tech Talk, James. So <laughs> all those right. people out there that have had this problem in the past, we've now solved it for you.
0: Well, I'm worried because my Google Home sometimes doesn't understand when I say stop. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> How's this going to go when I'm asking it for the 15 kilo, not the 25 kilo? Or the
1: 125 kilo. And the next thing you know, (laughs) this workout's a lot harder (laughs) than I remember yesterday. But it's fascinating. And again, there are so many things we're going to be talking to a home to do. So this seems like a... trivial thing, changing the weights. For some people, I apologise to all those people that have just been offended by that because for some people maybe it's really important, but it seems a bit trivial. But we are going to become more and more accustomed to just talking to our home, Mm. changing weights, changing lights, turning on bathtubs, turning on taps, whatever it might be, we'll be talking to our person of choice, our Alexa, for example, whoever it might be, our Google Home devices, our Apple HomePod, whatever it is, we'll be talking to those devices to change things around our home and that
0: will just be normal. And we'll have forgotten what it was like to actually have to turn on a light switch and and operate a remote control even. Well, we kicked off today's Tech Talk on a very sombre note, and that's how we're going to finish up. It is with a genuine sadness that we acknowledge the passing of Professor Michael Gore, AO, the founder of Questacon. Matt, he recognised the crucial importance in engaging people in science education and he gave this country a valuable gift.
1: Absolutely right. And I would say it would be no, no exaggeration whatsoever that millions upon millions of people have learned, been inspired, been excited, been fascinated by science Because of Questacon, as you said, Mm. he was the founder of Questacon. I defy
0: anyone to go to Questacon and not have an absolute ball and learn something.
1: Absolutely right. You you can't, you you go in there and determine not to learn something and you'll still learn something. (laughs) I'm just going to play, but you'll learn something. But also, I think there'd probably be tens of thousands of people who are probably in a science field because of some inspiration mm. from Questacon. And he actually saw an exploratorium, it was called, in San Francisco back in 1976. And he thought, wow, we've got to have one of those for us. He was at ANU at the time. And when he came back, he started working away on it. It took him four years to go from seeing something that he thought was fantastic to actually getting it up. And they gave him an old school, Ainsley Public School. It was opened in 1927. It wasn't used anymore. There you go, Michael. Have that old school there. And look, we'll give you a little bit of money to, have to maybe pay a few to explainers and, and knock yourself out. And I don't know that anyone really thought much was going to happen from it. I actually came across it in 986. It was my first year of university studying science at Sydney Uni. And I thought, wow, this Questicon thing sounds pretty cool. I want to go over there and do some work during the holiday. So I applied and I got a very quick response back that said, sorry, we only have explainers that are students at a Canberra or an a- ACT university, so only yeah, right. within the state. And I thought, well, that's a pathetic it's reason. A bit exclusive. It was a bit exclusive, so I went back and hassled. I don't like no for an answer if it just doesn't sound <laughs> right. So I went back, and in the end. I became the first ever interstate explainer employed by Questacon. Now, when I say employed, it was an honorarium we were paid. It wasn't a lot of money. I think they gave me some free accommodation at one of the colleges at ANU. And, of course, they were on holidays at the time, so it was pretty easy to arrange that. And I probably got paid $10 a day or something else. But I was pretty excited about being there, being an explainer in this old building. Now, by the time they moved to their new current building, 1988, that was a gift from Japan to Australia as part of the Bicentenary and the Questrom building was fantastic. I never worked in that one, unfortunately, but I've been back many times with my kids and Mm. looked at exhibits and just went, wow, compared to what it was like at the old Ainsley Public School that I remember, just unbelievable. And, of course, they now do their touring shows and that's really exciting for regional areas across the nation – Kids mightn't be able to get to Canberra, but they're taken out to people everywhere. And I've been lucky enough when they've come through our city to go along and be the role of an explainer, as a guest explainer when they've come through here. And it's been fantastic to go and do some of those old things that we used to do back in 1986. So Mm. really, really important facility for Australia. And well done to Michael Gore for being the founder, the person who had that passion and started that. Uh, He died at the age of 87. I can think he'd be well satisfied and his family could be well satisfied that he made a huge contribution to Australia.
0: Absolutely. And of course, Questacon exists and will continue to exist for a lot longer, I hope so.
1: Yeah, look, over half a million people already at the moment go and see Questacon still today. So you can imagine how many people have been through there in the years.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And with that, the curtain falls on another sterling episode of Tech Talk. Thanks again for another Thought Provoker, Matt.
1: Yeah, it was. It's actually really exciting. I love being back into it. The new year's going. There's all this new tech coming. So it is great to be back and in the swing of things, but there's so much tech out there, so much promise for this year as we come out of... COVID-19 I think we'll see more and more there's a lot that we focused on last year on COVID-19 yeah. but obviously we'll see a lot more that's non-COVID related hopefully
0: hopefully yeah well me I'm off to talk to a rack of dumbbells right now <laughs> thanks for tuning in folks we hope you got something out of our little podcast today I'm James Eddy and I hope to catch you again for our tech talk next week Matthew